keep your Bibles open to that passage. That passage will be our text this morning. And we'll be looking at the feeding of the 5,000. The miraculous account recorded for us in this text is one of the most familiar miracles in the Bible. But we must not allow that to make us apathetic or dismissive of this account. The feeding of the 5,000 is a unique miracle and worthy of our careful consideration. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew's account is found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Mark's account is found in Mark 6, 31 through 44. Luke's account, of course, is found here in our text, Luke 9, 11 through 17. And John's account is found in John 6, verses 1 through 14. I'll be referencing these parallel accounts and several others throughout the sermon. If you want these references for further study or the other references that I use here, my my sermon notes, as always, will be available online. Or if you ask me, I can give you a paper copy. Now, why is this miracle recorded four times for us? Think about this miracle in particular. Jesus healed the lame and the blind. Jesus healed lepers. Jesus walked on water. Jesus commanded the wind and the waves, and they obeyed him. Jesus raised the dead. On the surface, feeding people bread and fish doesn't seem like a particularly noteworthy miracle. And yet it is repeated for us in each of the four Gospels. In this miracle, Jesus made natural provision. But through this natural provision, Jesus revealed profound spiritual truth. In this account, we see Jesus revealed as the Good Shepherd, the Great Provider, and the Mediator for His people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we look at this account from your earthly ministry, that you would work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, may we apply what you would have for each one of us from this passage this morning. May we not leave unchanged. May we humble ourselves before your word. Do a work in us, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. And may we go forward to honor and to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, let's look at the setting for this miracle. We need to understand the setting to better understand the events of this passage. Now, remember back in verse 10, when the disciples returned to Jesus, he took them into a desert place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. Now, this city was located at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, near where the Jordan River enters the lake. This was not a particularly large city, but it was an important city in that area. And the desert area would have referred to uncultivated land that would have been within a few miles of the city used for grazing livestock. So the area would have been desolate, uncultivated, unsettled, but close enough to settled areas that travel was not impractical. And Jesus went to this area alone with his disciples. He did not broadcast his movements to the people. He went privately, as verse 10 tells us. But in verse 11, we're told that the people found Jesus. The people, when they knew it, when they knew where Jesus had gone, they followed him. Jesus was still very popular at this time in Galilee. The crowds sought him out. And even when Jesus slipped away to desolate areas, the people found him. And a large crowd on this occasion went to hear him teach, and to see his miracles, and even to be healed by him themselves. Now verse 11 goes on and tells us what Jesus did when these crowds followed him out to this desolate area. He received them. He received them. In Mark 6, verse 34, we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep 
not having a shepherd. Christ is moved with compassion toward this crowd because He saw in them starving souls. The zeal these people demonstrated in going to such a desolate place to find Jesus and to hear Him preach indicates the sorry state of Israel at the time. It was as in the days of Eli. The word of the Lord is precious. There was no open vision. Jesus saw these people as sheep without a shepherd. God used language like this at times in the Old Testament when Israel had unfaithful leaders. Jeremiah 50 verse 6 says, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away to the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. Ezekiel 34 verse 5, My sheep were scattered because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Now, although Jesus received this crowd as sheep, that does not indicate that he thought that everyone in this crowd had genuine faith. Jesus knew what was truly in their hearts. In John 2, verses 24 through 25, in a very similar circumstance, the Gospels tell us Jesus did not commit himself onto them, that is, onto the crowd, because he knew all men. He knew what was in man. But Jesus, during this period of his earthly ministry, received the crowds as they came, as they presented themselves to the human eye, as sheep without a shepherd. The people had flocked to Jesus as a prophet of God, leaving the comfort and provision of their homes, traveled to this desolate place. They sought Jesus out, though he had concealed his movements from them. And Jesus was compassionate toward them. He received them. Jesus still receives all those who will come to him. He must come in humility. He must come as he commands with repentance and faith. He must lay aside this world and the comfort and provision that it seems to offer and come to Christ. He will receive you. You will find him a compassionate Savior. Well, verse 11 continues and tells us that Jesus ministered to the people. He spoke unto them of the kingdom of God and healed those that needed healing. Notice again the preeminence of teaching and preaching in Jesus' ministry. Jesus performed many miracles during his earthly ministry, but the miracles were secondary and gave witness to the authority of his primary ministry, which was to preach the kingdom of God. In Mark 6.34, we're told that Jesus taught the people many things, and he spent a long time in teaching and preaching to this crowd of people. Verse 12 begins, And when the day began to wear away, the whole day had been spent in ministry. The need of the people was great. The time that Jesus had to minister among them was short. Though Jesus was undoubtedly tired from his constant work, he did not stop. He was diligent to use the time that the Father had given him to accomplish the ministry he had been sent to accomplish. Well, here in verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, it gives us the context for the miracle that we see in this passage. Jesus and the disciples and this great crowd of followers were in a desert place. The day had been spent in ministry. Evening was fast approaching. And as evening approached, we see a great need. The need in verses 12 and 13. As evening approached, the disciples told Jesus to send the multitude away. And notice that this was a group effort. Then came the twelve and said to Jesus. They were all there and had apparently come to Jesus with one mind about this matter. Now look at what they said to Jesus. Send the multitude away. Send the multitude away that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge 
and get provisions, for we are here in a desert place. You wonder if they interrupted Jesus to say this. There he is ministering to the people, but the day is wearing away. They're in a desolate area. Something had to be done. Maybe Jesus had forgotten himself. Maybe Jesus was so caught up in ministry, he lost track of time. Maybe Jesus was so focused on the spiritual needs of the people that he forgot to think about their physical needs. Certainly not. Jesus had not forgotten. He was not unaware. We see that clearly from the rest of this text. And the same is true today. Never despair of the Father's provision. He knows what we need, spiritually and physically. Make use of the means He has provided. Be diligent in your labor. Do your work as unto the Lord for His glory. And rest assured that God sees your need, and He will provide for you with what is truly best for you. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned that in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. May we also learn to be content with God's provision. Well, the situation concerned the disciples. And so they came to Jesus and said, Send the multitude away. This is said as an imperative, as a command. Jesus, you must do this. You must send them away. We're often like the disciples in this verse. In matters concerning ourselves, we're like Peter when he said to Jesus, Call us, or call me, unto yourself. But when others are concerned, we're often like the disciples on this occasion. Send them away. Send them away. Well, Jesus knew that he would meet the needs of this crowd. The miracle that happened in this text didn't surprise Jesus. John 6, 6 says Jesus knew what he would do. So why did Jesus wait until this late hour to perform this miracle? Why did Jesus wait until this need began to weigh heavily on the minds of his disciples? So heavily that they went to Jesus and told him that something had to be done. Send these people away. Jesus did this for the benefit of the disciples. His delay made the disciples more attentive to this miracle and more inclined to learn from it. By his delay, Jesus showed that he does not prevent the needs of his people. And though he does not always immediately supply for their needs, he knows their needs and he cares. Jesus always has it in his power to provide for the needs of his people. And when the time is right, he will provide. And let this be an encouragement to you in prayer. Do not despair because your prayer for a specific need has gone unanswered. Do not wonder if God is unwilling or unable to meet your need. If it is a genuine need, a biblical need, rest assured, Jesus knows. Jesus cares. It is in the power of his hand to supply. And he will supply that which is best for you. Now, sometimes what's best for you is not what you think is best for you. But the Father knows what's best. Some Christians have experienced peace and wealth. Some Christians have experienced unimaginable suffering. But at all times, Christians have experienced God's perfect provision. Around the throne of God, there will not be haves and have-nots. There will only be worship and praise when we consider the perfect wisdom of God and His provision for His people. Now, at the beginning of verse 13, we see how Jesus answered the twelve on this occasion. He said to the disciples, Give ye them to eat. The twelve disciples had recognized this need. They brought this need to Jesus. And their solution was to send the people away. Jesus told them, You meet this need. Feed these people. 
Now we can learn from this that when it is in the power of our hand to do good, we should do it. A story is told of D.L. Moody, who heard a group of wealthy businessmen in his church praying that God would meet a specific need in the congregation. And Moody interrupted them and said, Gentlemen, any one of you could take out his checkbook and meet this need. And then you could stop praying for God's provision and instead praise Him that He has provided. Now there are some things that we need to pray about and seek direction from the Lord. But there are many things that we should simply do because God's Word is clear, the need is obvious, and God's provision for us is sufficient for us to help others. Well, how did the twelve disciples respond when Jesus told them to feed the people? They said in verse 13, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. To summarize, they said to Jesus, We can't. It's impossible. What you told us to do, Jesus, we have no means to perform. We do not have the provision to meet this need. And from a human perspective, this is a very reasonable response. Verse 13 tells us that this crowd had 5,000 men. There may have also been a large number of women and children present. We know from John's account that it was nearly the time of the Passover. And many who were part of this crowd may have been Jewish families traveling down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. John's account gives us some more details about the disciples' response to Jesus. From John 6, verse 9, we learn that the five loaves and two fish did not belong to the disciples themselves, but rather to a young boy who was part of the crowd. In John 6, verse 7, Philip said to Jesus, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. Now a denarius, which is the unit of money referred to here, was about a day's wages for an unskilled worker. So 200 penny worth, or 200 denarii, was about eight months of wages. Philip apparently had done some quick figuring and determined that even if they had that money, it would not be enough for everyone to have even a little of food. You can imagine Judas Iscariot, who held the purse of the disciples. Maybe he he tightened his grip upon it when he heard Philip suggest spending such an extravagant figure. Maybe Matthew, the former tax collector, He ran these numbers through his mind, and he calculated how much food they could actually afford to buy. But what Philip suggested was impossible. It's very unlikely that Jesus and the disciples had 200 denarii. And even if they did, it's unlikely that any of the nearby towns or cities would have had enough food available to purchase. The disciples had no means to provide for these people. Now remember what the disciples had just experienced in their own lives. Right before this, Jesus had sent them out to minister throughout Galilee with only the clothes on their backs. Jesus told them not to take anything else with them. No food, no extra supplies, no money. And during that time of ministry, they did not lack anything. God provided for them. But the disciples did not apply that lesson on God's provision to this situation. They looked not to Jesus, but to themselves. And they knew that they had no means to provide food for this great crowd of people. Once again, how often are we like the disciples? We're quick to forget God's past provision and faithfulness when a new need arises. How quickly we forget. How quickly we give place to worry and to fear. Should not be the case. When a new need arises, whether it's a physical need or an emotional need or a spiritual need, Don't look to yourself and despair at your insufficiency. Look to God, our great provider. In the days of Samuel, 
the tribes of Israel set up a rock for a monument. And they called it Ebenezer, which means rock of help. And when the Israelites saw it, they were to remember that God had just delivered them from the Philistines. And because God had delivered them in the past, they could trust God to deliver them again in the future. Now, so ought we to establish spiritual Ebenezers in our own lives, to remind us of God's deliverance and provision in the past and encourage us to trust Him with the future. Remember God's past faithfulness. Well, in verses 12 and 13, we've seen the need. And the need is clear. The disciples on their own have no means to meet this need. Now, verses 14 through 17, we'll see God's miraculous provision. Jesus told the disciples, Make them, that is the crowd, sit down by fifties in a company. Now, this may have been done to make the distribution of the food easier, or it may have been done to make it easy to count the number of people who were present as a testimony to the greatness of this miracle. And verse 15 is remarkable. Because remember back in verse 13, when Jesus told the disciples to feed the people, they responded with, basically, we can't. It's impossible. But now the disciples do what Jesus said. The disciples had the people sit as Jesus had instructed. Now this is remarkable because on the face of it, it seems absurd. They have five loaves and two fish. Why is Jesus having the people sit as if to receive food? They have no food to give the people. Yet the disciples obey, and they have the people sit according to Christ's command. And then in verses 16 and 17, Jesus performed a miracle. First, Jesus took the meager provision the disciples had managed to find, and he blessed it. Jesus thanked the Father for this provision and praised him for it. That's a good example for us to follow when we sit down to eat. We should thank our Heavenly Father and praise him for his provision. Paul wrote about meat in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Giving thanks to God before meals should not just be vain repetition, like the ceremonial washing of the Pharisees, but rather following the example of our Lord and worshiping God as our provider. We're told in verse 16 that when Jesus blessed this food, he looked up to heaven. There's both physical and spiritual truth to apply here. And first, physical. There are many physical modes or positions in prayer that are proper. There are times when it's appropriate for us to pray with our heads bowed. There are times when it's appropriate to pray kneeling or even stretched out on the ground. There are times when it's appropriate to pray when we're engaged in some other activity, like walking or driving or working with our hands. There are times when it's appropriate to pray like Jesus did in this occasion, with his face lifted up toward heaven. Many appropriate ways to pray. There's also spiritual truth to apply here. When we pray, we look to heaven, and we acknowledge that what we receive, we receive from God. When we lift up our eyes in prayer, we are reminded that we look to heaven for our help, and not to the things of this earth. We owe God everything. All the physical blessings we enjoy, all the comforts of relationships in this life, all of our spiritual blessings, our hope, our redemption, our salvation, our inheritance in Christ Jesus. Everything we have comes from God. And when we pray, we look to Him, and we acknowledge that He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Well, after He prayed, Jesus broke the bread and gave it to the disciples to give to the crowd. Jesus broke the loaves and handed them out. And the disciples took those loaves and handed them to the people. And this continued on and on and on until all the thousands 
were fed. The beginning of verse 17 tells us that the people ate until they were full. It was not, as Philip had said, just enough for everyone to have a little. But they were satisfied. This was abundant provision. This was a feast. The people ate until they were full. And the end of verse 17 tells us that that there were 12 baskets of leftovers. The need was met with abundance. The people were full. And there was leftovers. What are we to learn from this miracle? Why did Jesus perform this miracle? Why is it recorded for us in each of the four Gospels? It's wonderful that Jesus fed the 5,000. It's a great demonstration of His power. But is that all there is to this miracle? Or did, or did Jesus, through this miracle, reveal spiritual truth about Himself? There's more revealed here than just the physical feeding of the 5,000. Now we're going to compare the feeding of the 5,000 to God's provision of manna in the wilderness. And we'll see through this that this miracle demonstrates that Jesus was greater than Moses and that he had come to establish a better covenant. Now we need to be very careful when drawing symbolic or spiritual meaning from narrative passages in the Bible. We do not want to twist Scripture to our own destruction and claim that it says something that it does not actually say. So how do we know that this is a legitimate connection to make? Well, first, many of the details of this miracle specifically align with the details were given about manna in Exodus. But second, and far more important, John's Gospel directly makes this connection. In John 6, verses 30 and 31, it's the day after this miracle. And the crowd again comes to Jesus. And the people say to Jesus, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee. What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, the day before, these same people had been fed by Jesus. And they came to him again, and they asked him for a sign. Specifically, they wanted to be fed. And we know that because Jesus says, I know what you want. You came here because you want me to feed you again. Give us a sign like Moses. Feed us daily as you fed us yesterday. Now what follows in John's Gospel is a sermon from Jesus where he claimed to be the bread of life. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. In verse 33, Jesus said, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And in that sermon, Jesus specifically claimed to be superior to Moses. In John 6, 32, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Remember, the crowds had just said to Jesus, Give us a sign. Be like Moses. Feed us as our fathers were fed in the wilderness. Jesus pointed out, very correctly, that Moses did not provide that bread for the Israelites in the wilderness. God provided the manna. But more importantly, God had provided true heavenly bread for His people. That spiritual bread was Jesus Christ. And so this comparison between Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the man in the Old Testament is a legitimate comparison. Now going back to our text here in Luke 9, what's revealed in this miracle about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Well, first, like Moses, Jesus acted like a shepherd for God's people. This imagery of Moses as a shepherd is used in Psalm 77, verse 20. Thou leadest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. In Numbers 27, verses 16 and 17, as Moses was approaching the end of his life, 
he prayed, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep, having no shepherd. And we see Jesus fulfilling the same role here in our text. In verse 11, when he received the multitude. Remember, Mark's account says that he was moved with compassion toward the people, because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of his people. God used Moses as a shepherd. Moses spent the last 40 years of his life serving as a shepherd of God's flock. But remember, Moses was not used by God to lead his people into the land of promise because of his personal failures. Jesus Christ did not fail. He completed the work of redemption. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And Jesus did. He gave his life for his sheep. As a shepherd of God's people, Jesus was superior to Moses. And second, like Moses, Jesus provided for God's people. As part of God's ministry through Moses, manna was provided for the Israelites in the wilderness. And the miraculous account of the provision of manna is found in Exodus chapter 16. It's a very interesting chapter. In Exodus 16, we read verse 3, And the children of Israel said unto them, that is unto Moses and Aaron, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. We wish we would have died in Egypt, when at least we weren't hungry. But God has led us out here to kill us with hunger. Well, then in verse 4, God said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. In the verses that follow, there are instructions concerning manna, how it is to be gathered, when it's to be gathered, how it's to be stored. The Israelites were instructed to gather one omer, or approximately ten cups, for every man. When they actually gathered the manna for the first time, those who had gathered much, when they measured it, found that they had an omer. And those who had gathered little, when they measured it, found that they had an omer. This was clearly a miraculous provision. The Israelites were also instructed not to keep any overnight. Those who disobeyed and tried to store it found that it had spoiled. It was full of worms and it stank. On the sixth day, in preparation for the Sabbath, the Israelites were to gather twice as much and prepare half of it the night before so that it would be ready to eat on the Sabbath day. Those who obeyed found that the extra manna kept overnight. It did not spoil. Those who did not obey went out in the morning to gather manna. And they found none, and so they went hungry that Sabbath day. This miraculous provision of manna continued for 40 years until the children of Israel entered the Promised Land. In Joshua 5, verse 12, we read that the manna ceased when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River and began to eat grain from the Promised Land. Now, we're blessed to live in a time and an area with a superabundance of food. We usually don't struggle to find food. If anything, we struggle deciding what sort of food to eat. But throughout most of history, one of the greatest dangers people faced was starvation. And if you've ever known starvation, then food security becomes very important to you. This is why the Israelites, throughout their history, looked back on the manna as one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament. This physical need for food was miraculously met every single day for 40 years. And this is why the crowd asked Jesus in John 6, Give us a sign, like the sign of Moses. 
Provide us with bread from heaven. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, God provided bread for his people. God literally provided bread, as we've seen in our text this morning. Now compare this. In Exodus, the Israelites faced starvation in the wilderness. And they murmured against God because of this, because of their lack of food. In Luke 9, the crowd faced discomfort. They were not going to starve to death if they did not eat that day. It might be uncommon for us to go a day without eating food, but that would not have been uncommon at the time. Uh, There simply was not as much food then as there is now. So the need in Luke 9 is not nearly as desperate as the need in Exodus chapter 16, when God met the need of the people. Now there in Exodus 16, the people murmured. But here in Luke 9, there's no request from the people. God met this need before the people asked. In Exodus, the people had to rise early and go out to gather the manna before the sun came up, because when the sun came up like frost, it would melt away. But Jesus had the people sit down comfortably and had the disciples bring the bread to them. The manna was only sufficient for a day. Leftovers would immediately spoil. But when Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now, at a first glance, the provision of bread in Luke 9 seems superior to the provision of manna in Exodus 16. But, of course, there's one major difference. The manna was provided six days a week for 40 years. It's over 12,000 days of manna. Jesus provided bread and fish for the crowd one day, one time. Now, which would you rather have? If God's provision through Jesus was merely physical bread, then God's provision through Moses seems superior. But the physical bread in our text pointed to Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of heaven God has provided for his people. Jesus makes this connection himself. Those who partake of him will never hunger and never thirst. Not hunger and thirst physically, but hunger and thirst spiritually. God satisfies the need. God's provision of manna through Moses was physical and temporal. God's provision of the bread of life through Jesus Christ for his people is spiritual and eternal. As provision for God's people, Jesus was superior to Moses. And finally, like Moses, Jesus was the mediator of a covenant for God's people. God used Moses as the mediator of the covenant of the law. John 1.17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. The covenant of the law was not perfection. Now the law is holy. The law is just. The law is good, as Romans 7.12 tells us. But all that the law can do is reveal to us our sinfulness. The law has no power to deliver us from sin. It can show us that we are sinners, but it cannot deliver us from sin. Hebrews 10.4 says that it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In Hebrews 8.5, The covenant of the law established under the ministry of Moses is referred to as an example, as a shadow, as a pattern of heavenly things. And in Hebrews 8-7, the covenant of the law is is said to be not faultless. Not faultless. But, according to the promise of God in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, it was to be replaced with a better covenant. Jesus Christ is the mediator of that better covenant. Again, 1 John 1.17 says, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. 
In Acts 13.39 we read, And by Him, that is by Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. As the mediator of a covenant for God's people, Jesus was superior to Moses. But when we consider the miracle in our text, we do not merely see Jesus feed 5,000 people. As wonderful and as glorious as that is, what we see is further revelation about Jesus Christ, His identity, and His ministry. He is the Good Shepherd who laid His life down for His sheep. He is the Great Provider. As the bread of life, He brings full spiritual provision to His people. Those who partake of Him will never hunger and never thirst again. And He is the Great Mediator. He came to establish a better covenant between God and man. The law shows us our sin, but it cannot deliver us from our sin. Jesus Christ can deliver from sin. He alone can make peace between God and man. He is the only way to the Father. The Word of God calls us to action. In John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, we read that the crowds, after Jesus had performed this miracle, after Jesus had fed them, they were so moved by these events that they sought to seize Jesus and establish Him as a king in Galilee. The first time Jesus came, He did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of men. By the grace of God, may we be moved as we consider Jesus Christ as He is revealed in this passage. If you've never come to Christ for salvation, do so today. Submit yourself to Jesus Christ as King. And as believers, may all of us be renewed in our devotion and worship and praise God for how He has revealed Himself in this passage. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank You. Thank You, Lord, for Jesus Christ, the Father for sending the Son, the bread of life, all-sufficient, perfect provision. Lord, we are so often like these crowds, so focused on things that are passing away. Lord, we understand that there is, there is necessity, real, legitimate, physical needs that we face in our lives. And Lord, we trust You as our great provider. Lord, help us not to become so focused on these physical things that we lose sight of that which is truly important, that which is eternal. Lord, we thank You that You are the bread of life, our perfect spiritual provision. We thank You, Lord, that when we partake of You, we will never hunger and never thirst again. You satisfy. May we never, ever look anywhere else, Lord, for satisfaction. May we rest in You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.